Thanks for joining us here at Thrive Church. We are a church passionate about moving people towards Jesus. For more information, go to our website, www.thrivechurch.co.za. How's everybody? Such a good atmosphere of faith in the building. The moment I walked in, I could feel it. Sheesh. It was awesome. All the men who are here Friday night with Pastor Trev, give me a hoo-ha. There you go. Because you are strong there, son. Such an amazing time together, and I'm so encouraged with some of the release that happened in, into the life of the men's worship at the end of our meeting on Friday night. Um, whenever men gather, there's something special about that as well. So look forward to the next one. Hey, uh, who here is a Forrest Gump fan? I got sent this joke by three different people this week, so I took it as God's will that I should tell it to you. Good old Forrest, right? He gets to the gates of heaven, he meets St. Peter. And he says, hello, St. Peter. Peter says, hello, Forrest. He says, what do you want? He says, I want to come in. He says, well, there's a test. You've got to take a test. And the test is just three simple questions. The first, first question is, how many days of the week begin with the letter T? Forrest writes down the question, thinks about it. He says, second question, how many seconds are there in a year? Forrest writes down the question. A third question is, what's God's first name? Forrest writes down the question. He goes to the desk and he sits down and he begins to write down his answers. In no time at all, he's got his answers and he goes back to St. Peter. He says, St. Peter, I've got the answers. St. Peter says, give them to me. He says, well, your first question, he says, how many days of the week start with T? He goes, two. He goes, what are they? Today and tomorrow. <laughs> so St. Peter goes, well, that wasn't quite what I had in mind, but let's roll with it. How many seconds in a year? He goes, well, there's 12. He goes, how do you figure that? He says, well, there's January the 2nd, February the 2nd, March the 2nd, right? Goes, what's God's first name? He says, oh, that was the easiest one of them all. He says, well, what's God's first name? He goes, Andy. He goes, how do you figure Andy? He goes, well, it says, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. <laughs> Somebody just got it. So, St. Peter opens the gates of heaven and says, run, Forrest, run. So, you know. <laughs> we are in an incredible series as we lead up to Easter called Victory Once for All. Victory once. It's kind of what we've themed our Easter uh, series as we lead into it. Culminating next, fr- well, this coming Friday, of course, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. When? What a time to be in church as we lead into Easter. But victory once for all. This Sunday, guys, is Palm Sunday. Did you know that? This is Palm Sunday. The reason it's called Palm Sunday is because it's the Sunday preceding uh, Jesus' uh, weekend, really, of Friday crucifixion, Sunday resurrection. This Sunday that we commemorate today, one week before he was raised from the dead, was the time when when, the people of Israel uh, really paved the the way into Jerusalem with palm trees. Uh, They would take palm fronds, palm branches, and they paved the way for him to enter Jerusalem uh, like a king. And because of that, uh, and because of the palm trees that were laid down, it's called Palm Sunday. But really, I think for me, like, I think this week leading up to Easter is just as important, really, uh, as, as Easter itself. And so that's why we've got Prayer Connect happening on Wednesday night, because we, we're in a place where we're preparing our hearts for Easter. 
Um, so we're in Palm Sunday today. So the story that we're about to dive into is the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem that we remember on Palm Sunday every year. Let's go to Mark 11, and I want to take you on a bit of a journey through Mark 11, a couple of verses from the chapter this morning. Now, as they were approaching Jerusalem, they arrived at the place of the stables near Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead and said to them, as soon as you enter the village ahead, you'll find a donkey's called tethered there that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks why you're taking it, just tell them the master needs it and will send it back to you soon. So they went and found the colt outside in the street tied to a gate. And when they started to untie it, some people standing there said to them, why are you untying that colt? It was kind of like Joburg in 2019, if somebody's busy hotwiring your car. <laughs> hey, putty, why leave my car alone, right? That kind of deal. They answered just as Jesus had told them, the master needs it. And he'll send it back to you soon. So the bystanders let them go. The disciples brought the colt to Jesus and then piled their cloaks and prayer shawls on the young donkey. And Jesus rode upon it. Many people carpeted the road in front of them with their cloaks and prayer shawls. While others gathered palm branches, hence Palm Sunday, and spread them before them. Jesus rode in the center of the procession with crowds going before him and behind him. And they all shouted in celebration, bring the victory. We welcome the one coming with the blessings of being sent from the Lord Yahweh. Blessings rest on this kingdom he ushers in right now. The kingdom of our father David. Bring us the victory in the highest realms of heaven. And so as Jesus rode in, people put their cloaks down, they put their palm branches down on the road, and Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem. Now, that was quite typical, to put cloaks down, to put palm branches down. That was culturally typical for when a king would enter a town. What was not culturally, culturally uh, relevant or appropriate at the time was the method of transport that Jesus chose. He ch his ride, basically, was unusual. Jesus chose a donkey's baby, a coal, a foal, a foal, yes, a colt, a foal, yes, a colt or a foal, right? That's what it's called, donkey's baby. That was so unusual. No king would ride in with that. This, this ride, this, this thing that Jesus chose to ride on, this baby donkey, if you will, was more accustomed or would have been more suitable to a hobbit than it would be to a king. It was so weird. It was a strange scene. Here Jesus was, the king of authoritative, miraculous power. Here he is, and he's riding into Jerusalem, and the scene looks right. The scene looks correct. The scene looks culturally relevant, like there's cloaks and palm fronds and everything, except the thing that he's riding on is not right. And in so doing, Jesus let it be known that he was the one prophesied about in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, people of Zion. Shout in triumph, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king's coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. This rather odd scene, church, conveyed two important truths for us this morning. One is Jesus was shown to be king by virtue of the people spreading their cloaks and their prayer shawls and their palm trees in front of him. He was shown to be king, yet by choosing what he chose to ride on, he was showing the people, I'm not just any king. 
Jesus didn't fit into the world's mold of kingship. And he brought together in this scene, he brings together majesty and meekness. He brings together majesty, he's a king and everybody's got their prayer shawls laid out for him. But he chooses the meekness of a cult. In 1738, the great preacher Jonathan Edwards penned a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. His imagination was captured by this vision that the apostle John got towards the end of his life. One of Jesus' disciples, John, got this vision of Jesus. And he wrote these visions down, and we have them now in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, right? Revelation chapter five, verse five to six, check it out. It says, one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Everybody say lion. Lion. Verse six, then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Isn't this weird? John is told to look for a lion of the tribe of Judah. Yet when he looks, what does he see? He sees the lamb. In the middle of the throne, there isn't a lion, but there's a lamb. Jesus was telling us and showing us in the scene as he entered Jerusalem the exact parallel of what's going on in Revelation. Look for a lion. Oh, there's a king coming. Yet he's not that kind of king. He's the lamb kind of king. Are you with me? Oh, look, there's the majesty. Yes, but the majesty is followed up by meekness. Are you with me this morning? Jesus combining majesty and meekness. John's told to look for a lion. When he looks, there's a lamb. And Edwards goes on and he writes, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience and is sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that in the text, I love his wording, Christ is compared to both. He's both lion and he's lamb. Because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. He goes on to list all the ways that Jesus combines all the character traits that one would think would be completely separate, completely mutually exclusive, right? He goes on, he says, in Jesus, watch this, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. We find perfect justice, yet boundless grace. We find absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. This king, he's hailed as a king. The people of Jerusalem cast their cloaks in front of him. They bring their palm trees and put scatter the path with him. He's hailed as king, a lion of the tribe of Judah, yet he enters Jerusalem riding on a colt with humility, the lamb of God about to be slain. Can you see both of who Jesus is here? Mark 11 verse 11 goes on and says, Jesus rode through the gates of Jerusalem and up to the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 to spend the night for it was already late in the day. Now when they came into Jerusalem, let's go on in verse 15. When they came into Jerusalem, let me just pause you here. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's late in the day. He looks at the temple. He hates what he sees. 
he, see, he sees a scene, which we're going to unpack shortly, which is, fills his mouth with distaste. And Jesus knows he's got a battle to fight, but he decides he'd rather fight that battle the next day. Jesus is deciding he's not going to fight the battle now. Jesus, Jesus chooses his timing carefully. So important that we learn to fight our battles at the right time. Hey, you see, because when we're high on emotion, we're low on judgment. And so Jesus knew this. So Jesus says, I'm going to go and chill. I'm going to go and rest for the night. He goes and rests. And now he comes back to Jerusalem the next day, which is Monday. So now we're into Monday morning. When they came into Jerusalem, Jesus went directly into the temple area and overturned all the tables and benches of the merchants who were doing business there. One by one, he drove them all out of the temple courts. And they scattered away, including the money changers and those selling doves. It was a very politely worded thing. Jesus trashed the temple. He had had enough. And he would not allow them to use the temple courts as a thoroughfare for carrying their merchandise and their furniture. Then he began to teach the people saying, does not the scripture say my house will be called a house of prayer for all the world to share? But you have made it into a thieves hangout. Jesus goes into the temple area and, and he encounters the outer court. This outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the area where anybody who wasn't Jewish, who wasn't Israelite, who wasn't God's chosen people, this was the area where, Jesus, where these people were allowed to be. It was the only area they were allowed to be. As God's chosen people, the Jews had run off the entire temple. They could go anywhere in the temple, but the Gentiles only had this outer court. And Jesus walks in and he beholds the scene where the, the Jewish people have taken over this outside court that was, not, was only reserved for the Gentiles. They've overtaken it with a whole bunch of money changing and selling of stuff, and they've turned it into a trading floor. And Jesus is freaked out by this because the Gentiles, it was the only place they could go. And yet now they've been squeezed out of that. And Jesus is angry. He's angry because uh, he has a heart to see people move towards him. He wants people to get access to God. And the Jews have turned this into like a whole bunch of trading and spiritual entrepreneurship. And it freaks him out. He's angry because the Gentiles can't get to God. If you had to picture the scene, you kind of got to think of it like the New York Stock Exchange. Have you ever seen a picture of the New York Stock Exchange with all these traders on the floor? They all got their jackets on and they're waving pieces of paper and they're shouting and screaming at, at, the, at the brokers. Now, add to that, they, they estimate that at that week, there would have been about 255,000 uh, sheep, goats, oxen, the whole deal for the sacrificial things that needed to happen at Passover. Add up. Thousands of people and 255,000 sheep and goats. That, that is a lot of lamb poiki. <laughs> that is a lot of oxtail. Hey? Any oxtail fans in the house? Oh, so good. So good. Basically, Scripture says if you don't love lamb, you don't love Jesus. If you, if you don't love lamb, we could pray for you after the service. We'll have, we'll have a guest coffee bar filled with people who don't love lamb and who are praying for conversion. We could get you saved and healed in 
the name of Jesus today and you could love Lem like the rest of us. Anyway, I digress, right? So Jesus enters this court and, and, and in that moment, in that moment, in that moment, the lion, the lamb has turned into a lion. The, la- the lamb who comes on a colt. Yesterday he was, he was, he was lamb. Yesterday he comes into the temple and he looks around and he just, he decides to be lamb. Monday's a different story. The lamb has turned into a lion. It's interesting because it was commonly believed that the Messiah would, would clear the temple area of the Gentiles, right? But this Messiah clears the temple area for the Gentiles. And Jesus was challenging the sacrificial system altogether. Now, the people might have been startled. They might have been startled with the fact that at his anger and his righteous, controlled anger, there was, but what, what absolutely shocked them, and what was going to shock them in the week coming up ahead, was that not only was he overturning their sacrificial system of the temple, he was going to overturn the whole sacrificial system and become the sacrificial system. Are you with me? So Jesus visits the temple twice. He comes in on a donkey into Jerusalem. That evening, Sunday evening, looks around, Palm Sunday evening, looks around, decides to sleep on it, goes home, sleeps on it, and comes in to the temple Monday morning and overturns it. Why? Because he's clearing the temple area for the Gentiles. Why? Because Jesus' life and mission is to open the, the kingdom of God to anybody and everybody who's open to it. But as just before he gets to the temple in Jerusalem, as he's on his way from Bethany, little village about two kilometers outside of Jerusalem, he's, he's kind of had his night's rest there and he's on his way into Jerusalem. Before he even gets to Jerusalem, he encounters a fig tree. Goes across and has a look at this fig tree and we'll read about this now in Mark 11, 12 to 14. Because there's a parallel scene that's going on here, a parallel to the temple. The next day as he left Bethany, in other words, this Monday morning, Jesus was feeling hungry. He noticed a leafy fig tree in the distance. So, so he walked over to see if there was any fruit on it. But there was none, only leaves, for it wasn't yet the season for bearing figs. So Jesus spoke to the fig tree saying, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples overheard him and in all likelihood were completely freaked out. Because, I don't know, if you look at this, doesn't that seem a bit, uh, uh, this doesn't look good for Jesus. This looks like Jesus is being a bit childish. Looks like he's being a bit petulant. Looks like he's being a bit, like, a bit mean, hey. Like, seriously, Jesus, it says it's not the season for figs. So why are you cursing the tree? Just leave the, leave the tree alone. I mean, maybe, what are we to read into this? Maybe Jesus was hangry? You know, hungry and angry? Anybody get hangry here? I don't think Jesus was letting his hunger get the best of him. I don't think he was doing that. I think there was something much deeper going on here. See, in those days, those fig trees would produce two types of figs. They would produce the big fig that would be um, what most people would eat, and that was produced in midsummer. So as, as summer came on, those figs would make their way. But in the springtime, as the leaves began to bud and grow on the fig trees, all, everybody at that time knew that 
simultaneous with the leaves that came along would be these beautiful little buds, little nodules, little things like this size, little, little mini figs, right? Like Austin Powers, I shall call him mini-me, like that kind of thing, right? Little mini ones, right? So they knew that these things were small, but they were exceptionally sweet. And so people, when they saw, when they saw uh, leaves, they knew, oh, those things are there. So that's why Jesus, it tells us clearly, he saw the leaves, and so he decides, oh, okay, let, let me mosey on over. So he does, he goes on over to the tree, and he's, because he's seen the leaves, he's expecting the buds, he's expecting the little nodules, he's expecting the little minifigs, but he doesn't see them, and so he curses the tree. What's really going on here? Jesus was saying that while the fig tree looked okay from a distance, it had leaves, and the leaves had emerged, the fact that it had no fruit meant that there was something wrong with the tree, meant that there was a decay, meant that there was a death, meant that there was a lack of, of growth going on here. Here's the thing. Jesus was saying growth without fruit is a sign of decay. So Jesus sh shows his disciples here a little private object lesson. Growth but no fruit fig tree gets dealt with. A few moments later, he enters the temple area, sees a whole bunch of stuff going on. There's a whole bunch of religious activity. There's a whole bunch of leaves in the temple, but there's no fruit. There's a whole lot of busyness, but no prayer. Everybody's running around like crazy. Nobody's praying. Everybody's got their own deal going on. Gentiles can't get to God. And Jesus says, disciples, I showed you a private object lesson a little while ago. Fig tree, growth with no fruit. I dealt with it. Watch what's going to happen to the temple. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. No fruit. And he cleanses it. He clears the temple. And he does away with it. Jesus clears the temple of fruitless activity. And he clears the tree of its fruitlessness, curses it. Jesus deals with the fig tree that produced no fruit, and he dealt with a temple that produced no fruit, and he will deal with us when we do bear no fruit. The lamb turns into a lion. Don't mistake the meekness of a donkey for weakness of conviction. Jesus was telling us here, first privately with his disciples and then publicly, he was telling us that he wants more than busyness. He wants to see if there's any fruit in your life. What's the fruit? It's the kind of character change that comes about from having been with Jesus. Because as we are being with him, we become like him and then we do what he did. That's the language we use at Thrive Church. It's, a, it's the fruit that happens from a life moved towards Jesus. It's the fruit that happens from a life that's moving towards increased Christ-likeness. It's the fruit that happens. Oh man, sometimes it can feel so slow and so frustrating and we can wonder, is the fruit actually growing? Has anybody ever felt like that? It's like, oh. It doesn't happen instantly. It always happens miraculously, but it does happen to the person whose heart is after God. It does happen to the person who's got a deep desire to be with Jesus. Everything starts from our being with him.
Everything starts from our devotional life. There's, there's no character formation without being with Jesus. You can't become like someone you haven't been with. Are you with me? If you're an anxious or an impatient person, is there some fruit to indicate that that's changing in your life? If you're an angry or unforgiving person, walks around with a dark rain cloud above your head, is there some fruit to show that the rain cloud's getting a little bit lighter? Or is it just thunderstorms wherever you walk? If, if the taxi cuts you off, whereas previously you'd wave with one finger, now you wave with five. <laughs> if you're a fearful person, is there some fruit to show that that, that fear is slowly dissolving in your life? Might take years, but it's dissipating. It's evaporating. It's dissolving. It's getting weaker. It's getting pushed out by the character of Christ in your life. Just yesterday, Pastor Ken and I were sitting and we were talking and I said to her, I feel like I've been gripped by like these ir- irrational fears. Like just in the last few weeks, I, I find I'm fearing stuff that I haven't feared before. And then I said, no, maybe the wrong word, maybe irrational is the wrong word. Maybe, maybe it, it's rational because they're rational fears. They could happen. But they're not faithful. That I do know. Whether they're irrational or rational is not the point. The point is that they're not faithful. And I'm wondering to myself, and I wrote a blog about it actually this week. I'm wondering to myself, I wonder if I, how, how's that fear got inside of me? What water have I let in my ship? You know, because I think it was Eugene Peterson, he said, all the water in all the oceans, in all the world, can't sink a ship unless it gets inside. And all the drama in South Africa, and all the bad politics, and all the corruption that we have to hear about, and all the muhus on TV we have to watch, can't sink us unless we let them get inside of us. Is this making sense to anybody? So I'm wondering what water, I'm resting with myself a bit about this. Like what water have I led in my ship? What's the fruit? That our lives start to look more like Jesus's that our character gets conformed to him. What's the fruit? Well, go to Galatians. You can read about them there. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I felt like Sunday school now, didn't I? (laughs) Nine of them. But they're all a derivative of one, love. They're all, they're all, they all come from the same love tree, right? At the end of Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the seemingly impossible character traits of Jesus, he says that what happens is, you know how the oppositenesses of Jesus, <laughs> the humility and the deep confidence, the majesty and the meekness, the lion and the lamb, they combine in Jesus. He says, The same thing happens to us. 
that the seemingly opposites of Christ, because we become Christians, Christ ones, little Christs, many, many Christs, right? Because we become like him, guess what happens? They start to combine in our lives. And so it is that we can be deeply zealous and passionate for the house of God like Jesus and then endlessly patient with somebody in another. Uh, how it is that we can walk with a deep humility and yet an incredible confidence in the, in the provision and goodness of God. You with me? We can get angry at the right stuff and then be as gentle as a dove in another moment. Why? Because the excellencies of Christ are combining in us. You're not just becoming a nicer person or a more disciplined person or a more moral person. You're not trying to tick some boxes and seven steps to a better you. That's not that. You're, you're seeing the actual life and character of Jesus take shape and become formed in you and me. The king who ambles into Jerusalem on a donkey then storms into the temple with the audacity to say, this is my house, of being replicated and being formed in us. And that's the victory, that you and I, we're becoming more complete people. We're becoming people formed together into Christ's image. That's the victory, that he didn't just save you from an eternity without him. He didn't just redeem you back from the gates of hell. He didn't just snatch you from the fires of hell. It's the, he did, but he did so much more. He brought you back so that you and I would become whole in him, so that the excellencies of Christ would become formed in us, so that the zeal of Christ and the patience of Christ, so that the majesty and the meekness, so that the lion and the lamb could be formed in us. That's the victory. That's why he came. And the irony is that this Jesus who, who brings together these extremes of his character and, and he begins to form them in us through the power of the Holy Spirit at work with it. The great irony is that just as we think, oh, he's about to balance us, just as we think he's about to merge all of this, just as we think we're becoming more whole, which we are, guess what happens? He demands an extreme response from us. He forces our hand at every turn in the story we've been today. Because the one who throws open the temple to anybody who's far from God, the, the one who goes and clears the way for Gentiles, the one who wasn't the Messiah that would purge the temple of the Gentiles, the one who purges it for them, right? The one who says, outsiders, welcome in. That one goes to the insiders and says, are you really sure you're in? because I don't see fruit. The one who's got his arms open to the, to the outsiders and say, come on in, goes to the insiders and said, hmm, I wonder if you're in. Do you think you're in? Do you know you're in? He forces your hand. You've got to decide, are you outsider or are you insider? The man who was weakened by a touch from a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, on his way to heal a 12-year-old girl, actually to resurrect her, 
I mean, the one, the one who could be weakened just by a touch, right, is the same one that stands strong with a whip in his hand and trashes the temple area and looks around defiantly at anybody trying to take him on. I mean, I don't think anybody would have taken Jesus on in that moment. Jesus became Lebanese in that moment. <laughs> it's not recorded, but some of the gospels say, do you know who I am, is what he's basically saying. That man who was on his way to bring a little girl back to life is the man, same man who stood strong in that temple and threw the furniture of greed around. He's both the rest and he's the storm. He's the sleeping savior and he's the commander of the winds and the waves. He is both the washer of feet and the regal king who stands before Pilate deciding when and how he'll die. He's the lamb who went to the slaughter and he's the lion who comes back for his people. And so with Jesus, here's the thing. He forces his hand, our hand at every turn. Either you gotta kill him or you gotta crown him. You either gotta crown him or you gotta kill him. Because he doesn't allow a middle ground. There's one thing no thinking human being can ever possibly do. And that's simply to say of Jesus, oh, what an interesting guy. Because he doesn't allow you to call him that. I love what C.S. Lewis said. Watch this quote on the screen. The team are joining me. Don't worry about them. Just stay focused on the quote. Watch this. He says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Watch this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. C.S. Lewis has an imagination, really. Or else... He would be the devil of hell. Jesus is either who he says he is or he's a lunatic. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Jesus only really leaves us two choices. Crown him or kill him. Crown him and produce fruit or he's gonna deal with it. He walks up to a, fruit, a fig tree. There's leaves but no fruit. He deals with a lack of fruit. Comes to a temple, sees a whole lot of growth, whole lot of spiritual entrepreneurship, 
whole lot of people going about a whole lot of business that's just not his business. There's no fruit and he deals with it. Revelation tells us, Jesus challenges the church. He says to them, either be hot or cold. Either bear fruit or none, but stop pretending because I'll spit you out of my mouth. We either crown him this Easter or we kill him. But Jesus doesn't allow us to play in 50 shades of gray. It's either black or white. It's either fruit or none. It's either you're a Gentile wanting to get into the temple area, in which case his invitation is welcome. Anybody and everybody. Everybody's welcome in the kingdom of God. Or if you're an insider, he's saying you better produce fruit because if you don't, I'll deal with it. Some crowned him. In fact, that Sunday, as they laid their palm trees and their cloaks on the road before him, some crowned him only to kill him days later. What will you do? What will you do? Whatever you do, please don't keep him on the periphery of your life. He can't stay there. Just give yourself to him. Center your entire life on him. Let his power reproduce his character in you. Let his power reproduce his character in you. Let his power reproduce his character in you. How do you do that? One simple action step. Give yourself to him. Surrender it to him. Give him your life. All of it. Lack of fruit manifests itself in many ways manifests itself in in an attitude that says I'll come to church but there's no ways I could serve manifests its way in a a mindset that says I'm not uh, generous enough or I don't have enough or uh, I'm I'm too worried about my budget to give manifests itself in a way when we drive past people in, in poverty and nothing moves us anymore manifests itself in broken relationships around us manifests itself when we're holding unforgiveness to, on, uh, in our lives. It manifests its way when, when we're permanently angry with the world. It manifests itself when we act and make decisions out of fear. But this morning the invitation is simple. He cleared a temple so we could come so we could come and crown him. We could make him Lord and center and first and last and everything in between. Amen. Let's pray. Come. This morning, it'll be my great privilege to invite you to crown him in your life. Maybe this morning, you've never done that. You've never really said, Jesus, here I am have my life you've never really surrendered that to him or maybe you did years ago and now it's a case of you've you've wandered and you've you've been away this morning be my great privilege to pray for you man what a time to do this before easter the week before easter what a time you could head into easter having crowned him 
Celebrate Easter knowing that He's Lord of your life. This message was recorded live at Thrive Church. We hope that it inspired you to move towards Jesus.